0: A Bible with you, or if you don't, there's one in front of you. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to finish Genesis chapter 1 this morning because Genesis chapter 2 starts in the wrong place. Talk about that in a second. Um, But as we go through this this passage, there's a lot in here that we're going to dig into. If you have questions uh, that come up at any point, please text your question to the number on the screen and we will. work through some of your questions at the end of the message this morning. So Genesis chapter 2 starts with the end of the creation story, day 7. Remember, the the creation story in chapter 1 is a 7-day creation event, and chapter 2 covers day 7. This is because the chapters just kind of were put in there somewhere in the Middle Ages. The chapter breaks aren't in our Bible. They're not inspired. They're not, um, God didn't put those in the original documents. They were added much later, the verses as well. And they were added basically so we could find stuff. So we can say, turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2 and everybody knows where that is. They're really good for finding sections, but they're not necessarily that good for dividing them up. And so if you're ever reading the Bible and you find that like the chapter ends, but the story doesn't, or maybe maybe there's a weird verse that ends in the middle of a sentence, just realize that those are there for your convenience, but they don't necessarily tell the story that the text is telling. And this is the case with Genesis chapter one. The first creation narrative that we've been looking at ends at the end of verse three of chapter two. So we're gonna finish that this morning. So we get to chapter two, verse one. It says, so the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. We've been talking about that for several weeks, how that worked. And on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. For on it, he rested from all his work of creation. So day seven seems a little weird, doesn't it? What's going on here? Is, is God, is he worn out? Is he tired? He's been doing all this creating for six days and now he's just exhausted. Time to take a breather. From what we learn about God in the rest of scripture, that doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. And that's because the word rest here, it isn't a, it's not about relaxing. It's not about being tired. It's not about being worn out. It's about stopping, ceasing. Uh, Bible scholar Bill Arnold says the concept is cessation of work, not recitation, resuscitation due to fatigue. It's not about napping. It's about stability. Listen to some other passages of scripture where God or somebody else rests. So this is Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion and he desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever. I will make my home here because I have desired it. I will abundantly bless its food. I will satisfy its needy with bread. I will clothe its priests with salvation. Its faithful people will shout for joy. There I will make a horn grow for David. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown he wears will be glorious. So God says about Zion, that's another word for the city of Jerusalem, he's going to rest here. But what's he going to do when he rests? Well, a whole bunch of stuff. He's going to bless the food. He's going to satisfy the poor. He's going to help the priests. He's going to help the king. He's doing all of this stuff because his resting is not an indication that he's tired, but that he's settling down. Here's another example about the people of Israel from Deuteronomy. Um, Moses writes, when you cross the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all the enemies around you, and you live in security then the Lord your God will choose the place to have his name dwell. Bring there everything I command you, your burnt offerings, sacrifices, offerings of the 10th, personal contributions, and all your choice offerings you've out to the Lord. So Moses says, you're gonna get into this land and there's gonna be enemies all around you and you're gonna have to fight them off and it's gonna be a lot of work. But when that's over and you get a chance to rest, he doesn't say, now you won't have anything to do. He says, now you can do this other work. Now that you have stability in the land, you can go about preparing a place for the temple and bringing your tithes and offerings into it. Uh, John Walton has this really helpful example. I think when when people are running for president, um, that's a pretty important season in our, in our nation. There's a lot of... Uh, um, eating popcorn and watching TV during the presidential primary season. But there's all of these men and women and they're going around the country and they're campaigning and giving speeches and going to fairs and eating fair food for some reason in Iowa. And there's all of this stuff that goes on. And after this long battle for supremacy, one of them wins, right? And they set up shop in the White House. And they take their rest there but they don't rest there because they're tired and they're worn out and the job is over. They take their rest there because they've become the president and they sit in the office and they rule and sort of, in our context, the country. Democracy is complicated, I don't know. So this is what God is ta- is what Moses is talking about, about God in, in day seven. He's, he's coming to a place where he's done all of his creative work and now he's come to a rest. So how does God's rest help us understand Genesis 1? And, and the key here is something that we as modern Western people do not necessarily see, and that is this. The creation count in Genesis 1 and 2 is a temple inauguration ceremony. What we've been reading for all of the other things that we've been talking about has been a picture of a temple being created. John Walton writes, there is a piece of information that everyone knew in the ancient world and to which most modern readers are totally oblivious. Deity rests in a temple and only in a temple. This is what temples were built for. So, Walton says, all throughout the ancient Mesopotamian literature and even throughout the Bible, we find that temples are places for gods to live. The Genesis account gives us multiple clues that when we are reading about the creation story, we're reading about a cosmic temple. Back in chapter one, we read, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and they will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. He notice he doesn't say the sun and the moon, he calls them lights. And those, the word for lights is the same word that's used for the menorah in the temple, the light in the tabernacle. In Exodus 25 through 31, God gives Moses instructions for how to build the tabernacle, which is a portable temple. And there are seven sections in these instructions. And the seventh section talks about the Sabbath rest. When we read about the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, we read that it's decorated with things like pomegranates and vines and animals and plants that are meant to remind us of the Garden of Eden. We're not here yet, but in Genesis 2, 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Those two words, work and watch over, we go to Numbers 3. We read, they are, the priests, are to perform duties for him and the entire community before the tent of meeting by attending to the service of the tabernacle. The word perform and attend, even though they're translated in our English Bibles differently, are the same words as work and watch. The same commands that God gives to Adam and Eve are the commands that God gives to the priests in the temple. Their job description is the same. When Solomon dedicates his temple in 1 Kings, we read that there's a seven-day festival before it. And then they have another seven-day festival afterwards. And then finally, in Isaiah 66, we read, this is what the Lord says heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? And where would my resting place be? See, God's saying, the temple that you built, that's nice, but I already built one. It's all of this. The heavens and the earth are my temple. And that makes Day seven, incredibly important, because I think sometimes we get really caught up with all the mechanics of days one through six, and day seven just seems like this weird afterthought, partially because it's in a different chapter, but it's not an afterthought. It's a key to understanding the theology of Genesis. God does not set up the universe and then leave. He doesn't stand back and watch it run the universe is not a terrarium that he sometimes like taps the glass on to see what's going on in there. He creates the universe, he enters into it, and he takes up residence in it. God lives here. And according to Genesis, we need to be reminded of this. So how how could we possibly be reminded on a regular basis that God runs the universe. Ever wonder why we have weeks? I was thinking about weeks this year, or this this week. This week, I've been thinking about weeks. Weeks don't really make any sense. See, every every month, because we have these seven-day weeks, starts with a different day, and it's kind of confusing. My birthday is a different day of the week every year. Like, it's so hard to keep track of. Because they don't really fit into any kind of normal sequence. Because years, years make sense. The, the earth goes around the sun one time in a year, more or less, right? Uh, months, months are about the moon. The moon starts with a new moon where you can't see it, and then it, what's it, does it wax? when it gets bigger, yeah, and then it gets full, and then it wanes, and then it goes back to a new moon, and that's roughly a month long, and it's not quite right, but that's where we get our months. Days, the the earth spins around its axis. We're in a period of time where the sun is shining on us, but the earth is going to spin, and then it's going to be nighttime, and then it's going to be daytime again, and it just happens over and over and over again. All of these things make sense, But weeks do not correspond to any physical phenomenon. They're just periods of seven days. Bill Arnold writes, the seven-day week ending in a sanctified Sabbath is unique to Israel among ancient Near Eastern philosophies. By definition, this institution of the Sabbath presents an alternate view of reality. See, all the other cultures around Israel had different ways of setting up time. Eight days, 15 days, 10 days. They had all these different measurement systems. And God sets up a seven-day week that ends in a special holy day explicitly to make Israel different. Think about this. What What if God had told us, church, no more daylight savings time? We'd all rejoice. But what if we were the only ones that practiced that? You'd go to meetings and and they'd say like, hey, you're an hour late for the meeting. Oh, I I don't do daylight savings time. I'm a Christian. How weird would that be? We would stand out as strange people because we lived by a different set of timekeeping. And this is exactly what God sets up for the Israelites. You are gonna measure time in these seven day periods. And it's going to remind you that God is in control of the universe. Weeks are a practice that are about the sovereignty of God, and they're a physical expression that's intended to remind us of his power, his control, his authority over the world. Weeks teach us that while we live here, this is God's house. And I don't know, maybe some of you maybe you aren't Christians this morning. You're here, you're visiting, you're with friends, your families, and And the thing is, this is your reality too because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how the word of God and and the power of Jesus has taken over the world in in an amazing way over the last 2,000 years. The entire world operates on a system of seven-day Weeks. We don't have a Babylonian calendar anymore. We have a Christian calendar. And no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, it is a constant reminder to you that you are not in charge of this place. Jesus Christ is in charge of this place. And God allows us to live here doing our thing, potentially ignoring him. But it's still... God's house. We read in verse 3 of chapter 2, God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. So blessings are an interesting thing. Most of the time when you get blessed, you get increase. We see this in in chapter one, when when the humans are blessed, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, make more of yourselves, get stuff done. And that's usually what blessing is about, fruitfulness, effectiveness. But then when God blesses a day, he says, this blessed day is the day that I don't want you to get stuff done. I want you to stop. I want you to rest. And there's a tension in that, that the day that God blesses is the day that we are not supposed to get stuff done. We learn a lot more about the Sabbath in the law. Exodus 20 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your sons or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or any resident alien who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Get busy, be productive, get stuff done for six days but on the seventh day, stop. Why? Because this is all God's stuff. He's overseeing it. He's taking care of it. He's making sure that there's enough. Here's another example of Sabbath. There's a a weekly Sabbath in Israelite culture, but there's also a seven-year agricultural Sabbath. And we read about this in Leviticus. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and tell them, when you enter the land I am giving you, the land will observe a Sabbath to the Lord. You may sow your field for six years and you may prune your vineyard and gather its produce for six years, but there will be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land in the seventh year, a Sabbath to the Lord. You're not to sow your field or prune your vineyard. You're not to reap what grows by itself from your crop or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. It is to be a year of complete rest for the land. Whatever the land produces during the Sabbath year can be food for you, for yourself, your male or female slave, and the hired worker or alien who resides with you. All of its growth may serve as food for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. The, the land Sabbath illustrates this same concept. Work for six periods, six years, and then the seventh one, don't. Stop. Stop. And it makes me ask the question, if I don't hustle, if I don't take initiative, if I let things go, do I trust that God is still running the universe and that he will provide for my needs? And in the Israelites' situation, they asked the question, for an entire year. And and you might say, well this is like this is crop rotation. We know all about this in agriculture. You you use the land and then you let it rest and then you go and do some other land and then you let that rest. But that's not what God says here. He says, "Let the entire land rest. No farming this year." Can you imagine the step of faith that that would require? You you go get a job, you need to work your job for 6 years, but the 7th year, I want you to quit your job and be unemployed for a whole year and just see what happens. And the year after that, you can get another job for six more years. Can you imagine that? We just we don't have any understanding of what that would be like, but God is saying, hey, this is my house. I made it. I've got all of your needs accounted for, and you can trust me. Can we, can we do it for just a day, even? One, once a week, work really hard, get stuff done for six days, and then one day a week go, you know what? I'm going to let go today. I'm going to worship. I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm just going to let all the things happen because I believe that God will take care of me. When Moses reiterates the law in Deuteronomy, he he writes, be careful to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord, your God. Do not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien who lives within your gates so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. This is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Remember when you were a slave in Egypt. Remember when you had no agency over your life. Remember when you just worked and worked and worked. And remember how hard I flexed to rescue you. Remember all of the miracles. Remember how I destroyed them for what they did to you. God says, I can take care of you. Trust me. On day seven, God ceases his creative work And he takes up residence in his cosmic temple from which he rules, reigns, and intimately interacts with his creation. And this is the capstone of the first creation narrative in Genesis. Next week, we're going to take a look at where chapter 2 really should start in verse 4. But the entire seven-day creation week is leading up to this moment where God takes his place on his throne in his cosmic temple. So this is the Old Testament. What are we supposed to do as the church with the Sabbath? How are we supposed to understand that? Like many things, the New Testament reshapes the idea of Sabbath for the church. Paul, in his writings, he pushes back against Jewish Christians that are trying to force non-Jewish Christians to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. He says it's not necessary to follow the Jewish law if you're not a Jewish person, and he gets mad about it because it adds something to the gospel. Jesus' work on the cross is the full payment for my sin and your sin, and it completely restores our relationship with God. And you don't have to do anything in return to earn that. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. So saying, but then you also have to keep the Sabbath or some other part of the Jewish law That's something that Paul lays out a curse on. In Galatians 1, he says, As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. It's a big deal. And he goes in further depth in Colossians. Paul says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done by hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed us and has taken away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Therefore, because Jesus is so awesome and Jesus has done such amazing things for me and you, therefore... Don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in manner of festival or new moon or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was what to come. The substance is Christ. And so if we read that and and you grow up in, in many of the church traditions that we've grown up in, we go, Paul says the Sabbath doesn't matter. Go ahead and work all the time. Get another side job. God doesn't care about rest anymore. Everything's great. I grew up believing that The the Sabbath is the only one of the 10 commandments that isn't repeated in the New Testament, so it doesn't matter anymore. And we don't have to rest. But is that really the story of the New Testament? In the book of Hebrews, we don't have a lot of time to get into it, but the author of Hebrews gives this really detailed argument about the idea of rest and how God's people were promised rest in the promised land, but they didn't take it. They didn't get it because they didn't trust God for it. And in Hebrews 4, he writes, Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people, for the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. So the author of Hebrews says there's something about this rest, there's something about this Sabbath that we need to hold on to because it's a gift that we've been given. And there's another guy in the Bible that I think matters. His name's Jesus. He writes in, we we read in Matthew 11, "'Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.'" While there is no longer a formal Sabbath regulation on the church, the idea of releasing the things that you are striving for and giving them to God is still very much a part of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus says, take my yoke upon me. If you were with us a a while ago in our study of Matthew, we talked about how the yoke was a rabbi word. Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, and a yoke is, is a way that rabbis would talk about their lifestyle. This is how I live my life. And so Jesus is saying, when you put my yoke on yourself, you are taking up my lifestyle, And we read this verse, I, are, you, are you weary? Are you burdened? Do you need rest for your soul? And we go, yeah, I, I think so. What Jesus says, if you want me to take up your burden, if you want me to fulfill the role of the cosmic king of the world and take care of your need, you have to do the things that I do. You have to take my yoke upon you. And it's easy to say, like we can we can do, we can talk about that, and, and we can we can identify the 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 emotional and the physical and the financial and the relational stresses that we're all dealing with, and we might say, yes, Jesus, I want you to take it from me. I want you to bear it for me. And it's easy to say that we're going to give everything to Jesus to let Him rule and reign, and trust Him to meet our needs but what does it actually look like to do that? And I would say that one of the things is that we should be people that practice Sabbath. If we actually want to achieve the rest that Jesus promises us, we can't just hope for it. We have to walk in it. John Mark Comer writes, your life is the byproduct of your lifestyle. By life, I mean your experience of the human condition, and by lifestyle, I mean the rhythms and routines that make up your day-to-day existence, the way you organize your time, the way you spend your money. You and I, we are not going to experience God's gracious care over our lives if we never give our lives over to him. If I never actually cease my work and in some ways just see what happens... And let him be God, I will never experience the benefits of his care for me. The fact is, this morning most of us are too busy. I've I've tried really hard and I'm not very good at it. I've tried to not tell people when they when they ask me how my week has been, my my default is, oh man, it's been busy. And I'm I'm trying to wean myself from that because That's everybody's life, right? We've all got calendars that start at 6 a.m. and don't end until 10 p.m. And maybe there's some sleeping in the middle. And we've got work and school and extracurricular things for the kids. And it's just packed all the time. Many of us work too much. We are addicted to the devices in our pockets. We live in this constant state of low-level anxiety, this is why we have these like mental breakdowns so often in our culture. It's just this, this low level hum of inability to cope with it rises and rises and rises until we just can't handle it anymore. And we live this way because it's partially it's because our culture puts it on us, but partially because it feels good. It feels good to be busy. I like saying, you know, I was so busy. I'm such an important person. I have so many things going on. It feels good but it's bad for my physical health. It's bad for my mental health. It's bad for my spiritual health. If I wanna escape that, I need to take the lifestyle of Jesus seriously and get serious about aligning myself with the way that God designed the universe to work and rest as a habit on purpose. Because that is what it is. This is why we see it in Genesis. Everything that we see in the first chapter of of Genesis sets the trajectory for the entire rest of Scripture. We're going to talk about marriage. We talked about gender a couple weeks ago. We talked about the image of God. All of these things come out of these passages. And so when we see that God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy and said, hey, you guys need to rest... We don't have the option to go like, ah, that's just not for me, if we want to be in alignment with the way God designed the universe to work. He blessed us. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, make things, do things, grow things. But then he said, once a week, rest, stop, give it all back to me. Let me take care of it. The truth is if I want to be fruitful I need to rest. I need to take dedicated habitual time to pursue stopping. And the, the reality is is I will have more to show for my life, you will have more to show for your life if you develop rhythms where you allow God to take over. And just simply trust in his ability to run the universe without you. So as we as we wrap up, I, I just want to mention quickly just the question like how okay, so how do we practice the Sabbath? There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of history. I mean, we worship the Lord on Sundays because of the resurrection of Jesus and the early church switched from a Sabbath on Saturday to a Sabbath on Sunday. And, and the, there's all of this legalism that maybe you've, you've grown up with and around the Sabbath. And there are people that are really, really heavy-handed when it comes to this sort of thing. And, and that kind of burden is not what Jesus is talking about. But if we're supposed to be people that foster attitudes and habits of rest does that look like? And I have to admit that this is something that I am really bad at. Um, I, I work too much. I work, I work all the time. I work in the church. I work in my business. I work in my house. And I love to be productive. And so this week has, has been a real convicting experience preparing this sermon that I need to do a better job of taking time to rest. But here's a couple ideas. John Walton has this really good illustration, I think. He talks about Memorial Day. We all celebrate Memorial Day in the United States in May. And at its most basic, when I experience Memorial Day, it's a day off. Right? We, most, most businesses, if they keep bank hours, are just closed because it's Memorial Day. But if you've lost someone to the violence of war, does that make Memorial Day a different kind of thing? It does, doesn't it? Maybe Memorial Day for you is a, is a sober reflection. Maybe it's visiting a graveside. Maybe it's doing something that reminds you of a loved one that isn't here anymore. Because, see, the more you are invested in the reason we do Memorial Day, the more meaningful Memorial Day is. So the more serious you and I are about inviting Jesus into the rhythms of my life and your life, the more your rest will be meaningful. If you get into a habit of like, well, I just got to stop working because the Bible says so, like that's, that's fine, I guess. But if you deliberately take time to spend in the word, to spend in worship, maybe it's, maybe it's a Sunday morning, you gather with God's people, and you go home and you relax and you eat good food and you play with your kids and you reflect on the goodness of God, then it becomes more meaningful. John Mark Comer has a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. We have it in our library. It's excellent. It is filled, filled to the brim with practical ways that we can pursue rest, set aside busyness, and take on the yoke of Jesus in the culture that we live in. And I would highly recommend reading it and implementing some of the tools there. As Christians, we're not under the law, right? We need to listen to Paul there in Colossians. We're we're not in a place where we hold practices over one another and shame one another for things. Sabbath, rest, it's gonna look different for everyone in this room the times, the practices, we have freedom to create them based on the season of life we're in and change them when they aren't working anymore. For most of us, maybe Sunday's a good day to practice rest. For me, Sunday's a work day. So I need to find a different rhythm for my family. Men, there's a lot, of, a lot of young men in this church that, like me, like to work. We feel good when we work. We feel accomplished when we work. We like checking boxes and getting stuff done and making money and providing. And it's, it's, it's a rush. and it's a, It feels good. And we need to stop it sometimes. We need to stop it regularly. Give it to the Lord. Say, hey, I'm not going to do that. I, that. That phone call that's a business associate, I'm just going to let that ring today. I don't know what fire is on the other end of the line, but it's God's fire, not mine. And that's going to be hard for us. But it's good for us. Women, Many many of the women in our church are stay-at-home moms, and we are all so grateful for that. But the truth is, moms, your job never ends. Your husband comes home and he thinks his job is over, but your job never ends because the children and the house and the meals just keep continuing. As I've discussed this with my wife and many of you, one of the things that comes to mind is, women, you need to fight for rest. You need to get it. You need your husband to help you get it, but you need to find time for it. You need to make time for it because you will be better off if you say, hey, right now, this is God's and I'm going to spend time recharging, reflecting. So often we, we have a mindset that like yeah that doesn't work for me right now but but when this happens then I'll be able to do it when when this criteria is met when the kids are older when work slows down when summer comes whatever it is then things will get easier but that'll never happen i think we all know that if we are going to be healthy people that align ourselves with the way god has created the universe to work We need to proactively, habitually pursue regular rest. And in that rest, we get to celebrate the fact that God, through Jesus, is in sovereign control of everything that could possibly concern us. All of the financial issues, all of the home improvement projects, all of the relational strife. God's got it. He will take care of it. But we can't just be people that say that. We have to be people that practice it. So, let's see if we have some questions. We do. Of all the Ten Commandments, the only one we don't keep is the Sabbath. How can we say the first nine we should keep, but the tenth is no longer applicable? Um, so the, the idea that we don't keep the Ten Commandments is rooted in this, um, in the idea that that the things in the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. So thou shalt not murder is one of the 10 commandments. Jesus doubles down on that, right? He says, you said you're not supposed to murder people. I say, don't even hate people in your heart. Uh, don't, don't commit adultery. Jesus again says, don't, don't even lust. Don't steal, don't covet. We see these, these commands and the New Testament is filled with commands. There's things that we're supposed to do in the New Testament. And we see all of these commands explicitly repeated throughout the New Testament. So we look at that and we go, well, the Sabbath command, take sundown Friday to sundown Saturday off and don't do any work. We don't see that re-expressed in the New Testament. In fact, we see Jesus and the apostles push back against it because it had become this legalistic mark of this fake spirituality. Well, I practice the Sabbath, so I'm good. And, and Jesus said, actually, the Sabbath is meant for your enjoyment and your, for your rest. But, like I said earlier, we see the idea of rest brought forward into the New Testament. And, and to say that, that Jesus and the other writers of the New Testament don't have anything to say about us being restful people that, that sit back and let God be sovereign over our world, well, that's just not true. It's all over the New Testament. So do we keep the Ten Commandments? I mean, kind of, because they're reiterated in the New Testament. What is the literal translation of the word Sabbath? Um, if I remember correctly, I think it means uh, cease. The Sabbath is to stop, to cease. That's the hardest part of it, I think. Because again, we want to be people that are always going, always moving, always getting stuff done. So that's my challenge to myself this morning and to all of us in this room who feel busy, who feel overwhelmed, who feel like we can't um, find enough time. Give some of it to the Lord. Take a day, find a time, and practice intentional rest. We're going to take communion. Um, The communion table is, is an expression of God's work and its completion, right? Jesus came to the cross to pay for your sin, for my sin. And what does he say at the very end of that mission? He says, It is finished. Jesus ceased from his work on the cross, his work on our behalf, and he began ruling and reigning as king. Remember, for those of us that have gone through Matthew earlier this year, the entire narrative of the cross is meant to be a coronation, an enthronement. As, as the soldiers are mocking him with the crown of thorns and the robe, Matthew and Mark are saying, no, actually, Jesus is coming to his throne. Jesus is being crowned king through this great accomplishment on the cross. Jesus becomes king of kings and Lord of lords through the cross. And at the end of that, he says, it's done. It's over. It's finished. And as we remember the cross, With the bread and the cup, we remember that Jesus is on his throne in heaven and earth is his footstool. Colossians says he is before all things and by him all things hold together. And this morning, if he has done all of this for you, if he has rescued you from sin and death and destruction through his cross, how, how, how much smaller are all of the responsibilities of your life that you can't seem to give up a grip on? All of the things that you're wrestling with, like, I don't know if God can handle it. But that's my encouragement this morning, is as, we, as the band comes back up, as we sing, as you um, come up, grab the elements of communion, take them back to your seat, and just reflect a little bit. What are the things that I'm holding on to? What are the things that I can't loosen my grip on? Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and, and ask him to show you how to find time to make time for more rest in your life. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.